Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very honored, uh, very, very uh, privileged to have uh, talked with uh, an absolute legend. Uh, this episode, I, I have a conversation with Robert J. Lifton. Uh, Robert is a pioneer in the field of psychohistory. Uh, he's written over 20 books, edited over eight others, including uh, Death in Life, Survivors of Hiroshima, The Nazi Doctors, Medical Killing, The Psychology of Genocide, and also Home from the War, Learning from Vietnam Veterans. He is the author of the new book uh, entitled uh, Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Um, and that is what we talk about in the conversation. Should also mention that he is quite established. So he's a research psychiatrist and also has been a professor at the Washington School of Psychiatry, Yale University, Harvard University, uh, City University of New York, and Columbia University. Uh, he was mentored and worked with Eric Erickson, who was who was one of the um, major uh, founders of different uh, aspects of developmental psychology. Uh, and they worked together in the 60s, um, and they were able to really coordinate with many other people. And so he has, he has done that. He's done the psychohistory. He's been an interviewer for um, survivors of Hiroshima. Um, he's also a founding member of the Nobel Prize winning International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and has been pretty opposed to uh, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars. So he's, he's an absolute legend. And uh, I was very, very honored and excited to uh, talk with him about his new book, Surviving Our Catastrophes. Uh, we start the conversation by talking about a little bit about him, about psychohistory, and how he sees himself as a what he calls a witnessing writer. We talk about his work with survivors of Hiroshima and understanding catastrophes. I mean, this is one of the biggest catastrophes in the 20th century. So how do we use that as an example to understand other catastrophes? Talk about the death in print for survivors. We, of course, talk about his work with Eric Erickson uh, and how important identity theory is. Uh, this was a part of the conversation that was, I was almost pinching myself uh, <laughs> talking to somebody that had worked personally with Eric Erickson, which is, which is just you know, tremendous. We uh, talk about Freud's death drive instinct and how they're different and similar to the death in print. Talk about how to understand resilience and surviving with COVID-19 is one of the most recent uh, catastrophes. Talk about individual and collective mourning, how we survive the effects of climate change, uh, protein self, survivor power, how we handle the realities of catastrophe, and many other topics. Again, uh, Robert has a absolutely uh, incredible career that has you know spanned over five decades. And uh, it, it was it was such an honor to to talk with him to just kind of you know learn from all of his wisdom and experience and really try to understand how we can have uh, resilience when we when we face uh, various catastrophes whether that's personal or collective or even global and um, I thought his his outlook on the COVID nineteen pandemic based on his work with other catastrophes was was unique and, and and really special to kind of get on here. So I was very happy to to have that conversation with him. 
As always, you can find this conversation, all of the conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube uh, and wherever podcasts are. So get to, to, to the Substack, uh, follow, like, subscribe, uh, contribute, share with your friends. Uh, that's all very, very helpful and appreciative. And um, make sure you get his book. And so now I bring you Robert J. Lifton. I'm here with Robert J. Lifton. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's a, it's a big privilege, big honor. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you uh, coming on and talking with me. Thank you. So we're going to talk about uh, your new book, Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. It is a, uh, uh, a small but very uh, mighty little book, and it's, uh, it's very, very wonderful. Uh, before we do, why don't you just tell uh, listeners very briefly, just kind of your potted biography. Just tell folks professionally what what uh, what your background's in, and uh, what uh, what you currently uh, do uh, in writing your books. Well, I am I'm a psychiatrist and a writer, uh, and I've been uh, doing research for most of my career, and the research has been directed at highly destructive events, but also about renewal and coping with destruction and issues of transformation. Uh, I'm interested in the psychology of the self, and I'm interested in cults. And I do work in what's called uh, psychohistorical. Very simply, that means uh, taking up certain issues, psychological issues, but always in relationship to history. I'm much concerned with history and with combining history with psychology. So that's a short presentation, <laughs> self-presentation. That's great. Yeah, I think some some uh, listeners may know you from your, your work, uh, such as uh, the book Death in Life, Survivors of Hiroshima. Uh, the Nazi doctors, and also the climate swerve and losing reality. Uh, I, I've read a while ago, Survivors of Hiroshima. Uh, it's a fantastic book. I think it's a classic now. And um, and so you, you you mentioned some of that in the in the book uh, that we're going to talk about. So let me just start out here by asking. You know, so you've you've been uh, or, or a psychiatrist for many decades, and uh, yes, how do you think? that kind of training background experience has kind of impacted or informed you as a kind of what you say, a witnessing writer or, or a talking writer? How, how do you see that kind of piece uh, together with psychiatry and, and kind of a witnessing writer that you discuss? Well, uh, the psychiatric training is important, uh, particularly the psychological side of psychiatry, which has been the area in which I've been most interested, but it has to be highly modified so that uh, one could say that I do most of my work by, or have done most of my work by an interview method. I have a regular protocol and try to make it uh, scientific in uh, asking similar things to each person I interview. And I'm trained to be an interviewer, but I have to modify it 
uh, quite significantly for the research that I do. And the modification has to do with uh, making it more a dialogue and an interaction uh, rather than, because this is not a medical situation or a pathological situation. Well, maybe the situation is pathological, but not necessarily the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really probing how people behave in extreme situations or in other aspect of historical situations. So it's a highly modified psychiatric or psychoanalytic in- interview. Mm. Uh, and it takes uh, a, a, lot, a lot of, con- there's a lot of concern with the psychological state of the person I'm interviewing uh, so that I do no harm to them uh, and give them uh, a freedom even to leave the situation, which few have. But uh, there's always a give and take, and I enjoy doing it that way. And people like to be able to express their own opinions and their own experiences in great detail. And in my work, I tend to often quote the words of the people I interview because what they say and how they say becomes extremely important. Yeah, I think that that's so interesting because, you know, obviously for for psychiatrists or psychologists, there's this training of how to do a clinical interview, how to do an intake assessment. And so it sounds like you've you've taken elements of that, but really, you know, it is obviously different. It's not a clinical setting, but you can take some pieces there and, and try to understand, you know, the psychological impact that some of these people have from various catastrophes of sorts is, is what it sounds like. Yes, very much mm. so. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So you, the book is, is interesting because it, it, it's really about resilience, uh, renewal, which I'm, I'm, I was very pleased to, to see that. And so you've, you've talked to folks that have survived Hiroshima. And, and so, you know, you're kind of at a really pivotal place because you've, you know, talked to folks that have witnessed many different types of catastrophes. I guess, how is your work with Hiroshima uh, survivors, how did that kind of help inform some of your thoughts on similarities and or differences with uh, COVID-19? I mean, obviously they're, you know, different in many ways, but uh, what did you find uh, thematically that you, that was kind of similar with, with these uh, two events? Well, my work in Hiroshima and with survivors of that first nuclear weapon uh, taught me a great deal that could be applied, at least in part, to catastrophes in general, including the COVID pandemic. And what I would say, it when something like this, uh, there was the catastrophe itself in Hiroshima, the dropping of the uh, first atomic bomb on a uh, human population in a city, Uh, and their reactions, if they survived, to that experience. Uh, So at first, their reactions were, and and, uh, this transformation that I'm about to describe uh, applies for survivors in general, 
But at first, their reaction was that of clearly helpless victims who were acted upon and uh, brutally, uh, physically and psychologically. Uh, and they could do very little about anything. Uh, and that was the experience of becoming helpless victims. But over time, uh, there could emerge from them what we call emergent leaders, survivors who begin to think about what they have been through and begin to articulate what their fellow survivors have experienced. Uh, they become leaders. Many of the other survivors, they're known as Hibaksha in Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. uh, they become followers of these emergent leaders. And from that process, there can be groups that form that begin to express themselves no longer just as helpless victims, but as people who have remained alive. Mm -hmm. Survivors can then take on a somewhat positive tone or aura uh, of renewing life despite the most egregious kind of destructive uh, weapon to which they had been submitted. And that is a kind of transformation of the helpless victim into the survivor as an agent of renewal. Mm. Uh, that side of the survivor has often been neglected. Uh, what I say about this is that when one is subjected to extreme trauma, as was certainly the case in Hiroshima, uh, one can either close down or open out. Mm -hmm. If one closes down, one is undergoing what I call psychic numbing. Mm. or diminished capacity or, or inclination to feel. And that can be protective because uh, there is so much going on that they cannot take it in. But if one opens out, uh, one then can join with others in asking questions about what had happened to them, what weapon had done this, uh, and they can share their stories uh, and become, in that way, active agents and no longer helpless victims. And mm. with Hiroshima survivors, uh, they, they did this not only in Hiroshima, but throughout the world, where groups of survivors came to different countries in different parts of the world and told their stories as survivors. Of course, they emphasized the horrific weapon they had been subjected to, but they also were themselves uh, evidence of people who nonetheless remained alive and could gain knowledge or what sometimes can be called survivor wisdom, learning from what they had ex experience, experienced and conveying it to other people. Mm. And while doing that, they were doing a service to the world, certainly, but also 
helping their own healing process and finding meaning in it. Uh, so that transformation from the helpless victim to the agent of life and of renewal uh, uh, is crucial for healing our catastrophes and uh, or surviving our catastrophes uh, and moving beyond them into uh, an exploration of what they are and have been. Hmm. I want to ask generally about that, I guess, is in many ways, there's this notion of accepting the reality of, of a catastrophe, as horrific as it may be. Um, obviously, these Hiroshima and, and, and uh, COVID-19 are different in various ways. You know, one was global, one was you know localized, et cetera. But how do you think, it, is, it, is it difficult for some people to see themselves as an, an active agent uh, with more of a survivor mentality as opposed to a victim or this victim mentality? Do, do, you, do you see, do you see, is there a, a lure or is there like a, uh, maybe an accessibility for one or the other. We, we hear many things about victims and victimhood and in trauma work or or even outside of that. But it feels like less so about the active agent they are, the element of surviving, the instilling types of you know true types of power from within. How, how do you how do you think generally people uh, well, gravitate well, to one uh, of these? As you're suggesting, it can be very difficult. Yeah, it's yeah. not an easy process that just occurs. It's a lifelong struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, I speak of what I call the death imprint mm -hmm. in survivors. And that means they have an imprint of death overall, uh, but also of the particular catastrophe to which they've been exposed, which they never entirely uh, lose. Mm. And uh, it's uh, a struggle all of their lives uh, to emerge from being victims and uh, become more active. And it has to be it has to be a collective process. They need the support of others and uh, the groups that form make it possible. But the struggle for them is never over. Mm. Uh, they, they live their lives having survived that particular uh, catastrophe. But another thing I would say is that they find increasing meaning, which helps them a great deal uh, as they tell their stories and as they convey their experience to others uh, in their society and throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And I, in my book, speak of human beings as meaning-hungry creatures, mm -hmm. but as survivors, as doubly so. Mm -hmm. A survivor is constantly seeking some meaning, some narrative that can explain or at least give him a sense of what he has been through and what its significance is or might be. 
And with Hiroshima survivors, they increasingly gave uh, those who opened out or people went back and forth between closing down and opening out. But when they opened out, uh, they could find meaning in conveying the dimensions of the bomb. It's powerfully destructive power. It's revolutionary uh, technology of destruction, one might say, or mm -hmm. of killing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they could also find meaning in anti-informing and joining uh, and uh, contributing to anti-nuclear groups. That became a very important source of meaning and significance for what they were doing, significance which they themselves felt, and again, could contribute to their own healing. Uh, so uh, that meaning they could derive, that form of survivor wisdom uh, contributed to their continuing struggle uh, to become active agents and to overcome uh, their victim consciousness. I remember a visit I made to Hiroshima some years after my study, uh, and I talked to one of the leaders there, and he said, you know, we're a little worried here about too much victim consciousness, uh, and we're very concerned with uh, turning that into some kind of uh, greater action. And he also said, um, he also said, it does look to us as though the second generation is mostly okay because there was fear that would have, it would affect subsequent generations as it could. He said, it seems that they're okay, but what about the third generation? In other words, the fear of the bomb's impact can be endless. Uh, here is a, a a weapon that not only destroys on a revolutionary level, but leaves poison in your bones, which may strike you down at any time subsequently, even though it has shown no symptoms. Uh, that, of course, is the radiation, which for ordinary people was simply a kind of poison. So this death imprint, which uh, Hiroshima survivors were constantly uh, coping with or struggling to cope with uh, is a key component of survivors, which they must constantly struggle to overcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that in my interviews, as they spoke out in great detail, uh, they could also convey this narrative to me. And they understood understood that I was going to uh, I was going to write about it and convey it to uh, a, a new audience. Uh, so that was important. It was also important that they understood me not to be because you know in a way my situation in Hiroshima had some absurdity. Here I was, a person from 
the country that dropped the bomb on them, mm-hmm. asking them about their experience. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to write a piece uh, in uh, uh, in an Asahi outlet, an important uh, paper, an important journal that was published in Hiroshima, in which I made clear that my purpose in Hiroshima was to convey the experience of experiences of people in the face of a dreadful weapon and to overcome that weapon uh, to uh, prevent the use of that weapon in the future. And most could understand, uh, almost everybody I spoke to could understand uh, that and uh, could then go into active and free interchange with me. Do you think in these cases you were talking, it's interesting listening to you about the generational pieces of, well, maybe the next generation would be, um, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, adjusted. But what about subsequent generations? And I think if if I have this right, many years ago, you had uh, had some work or or had some mentorship with Eric Erickson, correct? Who was very oh yes, uh, Erickson was a great mentor of mine, mm-hmm. uh, especially in uh, my earlier work. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, yes, yeah. So just I mean, many people will be familiar with you know obviously his influence, but is there some piece of this here with this idea? So kind of merging the two things, the cycle history that you do, and maybe some of that developmental stuff of how do we, how do we individually, but then also as, as groups through our history, have an understanding of our development, of our understanding of how we, our ego develops, of how we socially develop. How do you think the ripple effects are of catastrophes for generations later? Well, um, Erickson taught me many things, and one of them was how to be what I call a psychiatrist in the world. (laughs) That is, someone concerned with larger history, including human history in general, and the particular history of people in a culture uh, where I was doing some research or study. And that means... uh, never to pathologize things, but to recognize the wide dimension of the human psyche Mm. so that it can do many things and can have at the same time many vulnerabilities can even be contradictory within itself, uh, uh, as all of us know from our own lives. Uh, And uh, in that sense, Erickson's identity theory mm-hmm. became very useful for my study of thought reform or so-called brainwashing, which was my first study, uh, which I did in Hong Kong, uh, interviewing people coming out of China who were both Chinese students and intellectuals or, or Westerners, that is, teachers from Europe or the United States who had been, or people who had been either teachers or uh, priests or uh, 
had lived in Hong Kong uh, and were so-called China watchers. Uh, so uh, the the process of and and that kind of experience of being a psychiatrist in the world where I could exchange ideas with China watchers who were uh, confused about this process of thought reform and could help me uh, refer could refer to me. There's people whom I could interview as part of my study. Uh, uh, that kind of life attracted me. So it was a combination of fascination with the subject and at the same time uh, a sense of adventure in doing that, uh, which seemed a better way of life for me anyhow than a comfortable office in an upper west side New York uh, area uh, to do clinical work in psychiatry. Uh, but Erickson also taught me how to be, how shall I say, respectful of existing tradition, mm. including psychoanalytic tradition for the study, mm. but at the same time uh, to recognize that that tradition can become very narrow sometimes and uh, could, in a way, interfere with one's freedom of uh, pursuit of one's historical truth. Mm. Uh, it, it had to do with Erickson's ambivalence toward psychoanalysis. So mm -hmm. Erickson helped me uh, become ambivalent to psychoanalysis. <laughs> uh, of course, it's my formation because I did have some years of psychoanalytic training. But uh, psychoanalysis was both a great human psychological achievement uh, and a very important movement. And at the same time, when it became uh, itself over-traditionalized and mechanized, uh, it could be suppressive. Mm -hmm. And so I had to live with that duality uh, until finally I, I left the uh, psychoanalytic movement by uh, leaving my training because I didn't feel I had to become a psychoanalyst, but was interested in using the parts of the theory that served me mm -hmm. and at the same time had conflicts with uh, what they would teach. Mm. Uh, so Erickson was very important in those ways. And so in that first study of thought reform with lots of coercive criticism, self-criticism and extraction of confessions of the people to whom they subjected it for what they call re-education, uh, uh, in that process, I could use his identity theory, uh, which... Uh, and I could see my work finally uh, after I finished it and became interested in his work. I could see that I was studying the Chinese communist attempt to convert the uh, filial son in traditional Chinese history into the filial 
communist or Maoist uh, in relation to thought reform. So his identity theory was very useful to me. Hmm. But when I went to Hiroshima and did that study, that was less the case because there wasn't that much in Erickson about issues of death and death symbolism, which I encountered in Hiroshima and had to uh, look in other directions and also form my own ideas about death and the continuity of life. Mm. Uh, so uh, uh, in that, uh, I then I continued to uh, see Erickson uh, because I was uh, host to meetings on psychology and history for a long time. In fact, 55 years uh, mm. in my uh, large study in, in uh, uh, Wellfleet, Massachusetts. But uh, no longer was his identity theory as, as applicable to the work I was doing. Mm. Mm. This is very interesting because I, as I was, I was reading the book and I was thinking about some of these things and was curious how much Erickson had a had a kind of a influence there on the, on some of the the themes. You you talk about you talked about it earlier this this idea of the death imprint, and so. You know, since you have obviously analysis training, uh, maybe historically uh, a while ago and quite familiar, how do you see the death imprint as uh, different or similar to Freud's later work of the death instinct that he uh, kind of elaborated on? Um, How do you see them as similar or different? Well, what came to be uh, known as Freud's death drive, death instinct or death drive, uh, yeah. uh, was, uh, as you say, part of his later work. But it's been a confusing concept um, for many psychoanalysts because what, uh, it was, in a way, used, uh, fail, uh, Freud promulgated it fairly loosely as simply a destructive force of the individual with Mm. which he was born. And that's a difficult uh, idea to sustain, and it's difficult to really use clinically. Uh, And what what I found myself doing, I, I wrote an early book called The Broken Connection on Death and the Continuity of Life, and it was a theoretical book. And in that book, I found myself interested in Freud's ideas, but translating his instinctual language into a language of symbolism or symbolization uh, so that it had more to do with what people were actually experiencing. And yes, of course, uh, what uh, what he calls the death drive uh, is is a little different from the death imprint because the death imprint is externally uh, uh, externally uh, uh, created by the catastrophe itself, whereas the death drive is an inner tendency toward death and uh, toward other negative self-destructive 
behavior. Mm. So that that is a real difference. Mm. Uh, I don't really believe there's a death drive in us, but uh, we as human beings can, as in many or almost all situations, can go either way. We are capable of living together and even uh, through our survival so far as a species and uh, as a member of one of many cultures in the world uh, suggests that there is another aspect of some kind of collective cooperation uh, towards survival. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we can go either way as human beings, uh, but I don't think there's an inherent drive toward death. Uh, lots of students of Freud have struggled with that issue uh, throughout their uh, efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this this idea, I guess, of 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 death and of survival uh, and catastrophe, kind of brings us to some of the elements of of COVID nineteen. I mean, this is something that you know we've, I think, come out of the probably the most difficult parts of the pandemic. Of course, we'll still have variants that come and go. Um, But for 2020 and 2021, it was, you know, a kind of once in a century kind of pandemic globally. Super difficult for so many people. uh, Many people died. Many people were sick. Many people have effects. And of course, there's, you know, issues with (laughs) misinformation online and things like that. How do you take these concepts we've been talking about, uh, a death imprint, uh, some of the survival mentality, how do we understand, and, and some of the work with, with, with your earlier work, how do we take these concepts and, and kind of map them onto what all of us around the world were experiencing during the pandemic? How do, how do, you, how do you see well, that? Uh, here, here there's something interesting going on. Uh, with COVID, uh, uh, there were immediate survivors, people who had various uh, cases of the disease with various degrees of seriousness, uh, or their families or people close to them. Uh, they were immediate survivors uh, who experienced firsthand what that disease was and what it did to human beings. But then there are the rest of us. We too are in some measure, as long as we remain uh, alive, uh, survivors of COVID in the sense that we were afraid of it. Uh, As as you say, uh, it was at its worst uh, a few years ago, but a couple of years ago, but at the same time, uh, there are always new variants, and a new variant is making its way now. And we find ourselves to be distant survivors. Uh, we are haunted by the threat of COVID, and the threat has to do with death. And therefore, the anxiety is death anxiety, which all of us feel. We don't necessarily 
use that language or think of it in those terms, but it's in us, in our efforts, and they can be very strong efforts, whether it's moving to different places, changing one's life, uh, how one behaves with people, or what one does in relation to the work or the workplace, or uh, in so many ways. Uh, so there are the immediate survivors uh, who have the searing, powerful, personal uh, impact, impact of the condition, and the distant survivors, the rest of us who struggle against the death anxiety, uh, that is really planetary because there's nobody in the world who is free of some possible uh, form of co the COVID pandemic. Uh, and the immediate survivors have formed groups. Mm. Sometimes they call it a group for the study of long COVID or widows and widowers who are COVID survivors. They have various names for the groups. And these groups seek to grasp and understand what they've been through and convey that knowledge to the rest of society. And the implication is that they seek a better connection between the immediate survivors with their immediate pain from the condition and the distant survivors, the rest of us who have altered our lives to such a great degree in order to uh, prevent the disease from hitting us. Yeah. Uh, and that process goes on. But the immediate survivors create a nuclear, a kind of nucleus of knowledge, uh, and they seek to have an impact on the larger society. And in that sense, we see the beginnings of survivor power and survivor wisdom mm -hmm. in those immediate survivors of COVID. Hmm. How, how, I have a, a question about uh, another catastrophe, but I guess I'll ask this one other question first because it will tie in there. You talk about this idea of individual and collective mourning. And why do you think? collective mourning is is necessary and and how does that look pragmatically uh when you when you have a type of loss how do collectively do people mourn mourning is always an issue for survivors uh because people around them have died and they themselves have felt what's what's sometimes called a debt to the dead a debt to the dead because they die while the survivors themselves remained alive. Uh, uh, and that mourning is for those people who have died, but also for the changes in their own lives. Uh, uh, the mourning is both individual and becomes collective or can become collective. And in order for the mourning to be a source of uh, knowledge, uh, it must be in some measure collective. Uh, when Americans increasingly were dying in such large numbers, 
from uh, COVID-19, there were very few ways in which there could be collective mourning. But then when the Biden administration came in, uh, one of the first things it did was initiate a large national process of collective mourning, which involved uh, lights that, that were uh, placed in uh, the area around the Lincoln Memorial. And it was mm-hmm. meant to be a ceremony of collective mourning. And then they repeated another version of such a ceremony. Uh, such a ceremony uh, shortly afterwards. Uh, the collective mourning can then be a source of relief, but also of new energy. Hmm. Uh, it, it has a kind, it fits in with the struggle for meaning. Hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that a couple of very knowledgeable German psychiatrists, whom I quote, Alexander and Margareta Mitchellish, describe, they have a book called The Inability to Mourn. Mm. And what they meant was that in Germany, uh, the people had followed a Fuhrer whom they loved and were complicit with, but came to recognize that he and they too were uh, participants in evil, uh, and they had difficulty in mourning for his death and in getting themselves to mourn for his death. And this could be seen in individual patients and in collective behavior. And that inability to mourn affected the whole country and the difficulty it had coming to constructive changes soon after World War II. Uh, Mourning then becomes involved with the entire experience in a very important way. And sometimes there can be angry mourning. There are some Islamic groups and some American groups uh, who at the time of funerals can become violent in relation to the mourning uh, because the mourning becomes uh, a a vehicle for uh, what they have gone through and what they they relate to their enemies having caused them. Do you think that with something like mm, climate change and the effects that we feel and we see now, you know, for for yourself and for myself, it won't be quite nearly as bad as it's going to be for, you know, the next generation and the generation after that, regardless of what we do or don't do, unfortunately. Um, how do we tackle or what what can we understand individually and collectively with that reality of that catastrophe that is very slowly but ongoing and increasingly worse? That can leave a lot of pessimism and, and negative spirit. But how do you talk? I mean, you don't yeah. talk about it so much in the book, but what are your thoughts about that kind of catastrophe? Well, it's very real and very threatening. Uh, it's true that climate change is more incremental 
than say nuclear weapons or the Hiroshima bomb. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it's very much with us already. Mm-hmm. And we see in fires and droughts and floods, uh, the effect of climate change in increasing uh, the destructive power uh, of various events, uh, various uh, events of weather or of climate, uh, including hurricanes and tornadoes, so that uh, climate change is already affecting our lives. Uh, And uh, some years ago, an associate and I did a research study that was really meant to study the effects of nuclear threat, but we found people were talking increasingly about climate or about nuclear uh, threat almost interchangeably, as though in our psyches we have a certain area for <coughs> for uh, in, for fearing or uh, imagining vast large-scale destruction, and it can be used whether it's for climate change or for uh, nuclear threat or some other life-destroying, even species-destroying kind of catastrophe, uh, so that when we interviewed people in that study, they would, in the same sentence, talk about the climate threat and the nuclear threat, uh, and it was an overall apocalyptic aura that Mm. they had. Mm. And there's a problem about this apocalyptic aura because uh, in what we call apocalyptic events, uh, uh, there can be a projection of the end of the world, in a sense, the destruction of most of the world. Mm. But at the same time, some kind of renewal, a remnant that brings something more pure into the world uh, as a kind of result of the apocalyptic process uh, with both climate and nuclear threat, uh, the apocalyptic twins, as I call them. uh, There's, of course, a much more blurred sense of that possible expectation of uh, purification or the world being recreated in a pure fashion as the apocalyptic narrative would narrative would have it. So that there are those confusions. Uh, but the apocaly- uh, getting back to climate specifically, we do sense, as you say, that our children and grandchildren's and great-grandchildren's experience will be worse with climate than our own. But we see ourselves as part of the great chain of being. And the fact that climate change will be so much worse, even in the future, at a time when we won't be there, um, still it still disturbs us because we human beings need to have an attachment beyond the self into something that 
continues beyond our own limited lives. And in that version of the great chain of being, uh, the uh, threat of climate change uh, affects us even now. You write in the book, uh, towards the end, you talk about this need for su- survivors and, and their what's happened to them to, to, to go on through generations. And you state that the book is about survivor power. And you talk about this uh, protean self as this uh, process of becoming, right? How do we have this self that is is an ever-evolving piece? How do you what is the, I guess, your answers of how do we uh, handle the realities of catastrophe and we truly have a, a self that's always in process and, and having a good survivor power in that way? Um, well, I, I first assume that we must initially, we must make uh, very clear that we recognize our catastrophes. That sounds strange, but there's such a large population in this country that refuses to recognize uh, the catastrophe of COVID pandemic, and that we, uh, in that way, uh, create the possibility for survivor power and survivor renewal. Uh, And I also speak about Uh, Well, I would say that, for instance, in Hiroshima, nobody could deny that a bomb had been dropped. Uh, It caused too much destruction and too much pain. But one can deny that there's such a thing as COVID. One can, as the right-wing extremists uh, do, can deny the threat of COVID or the... uh, uh, healing effects of the vaccines that we develop uh, because this becomes contrary to what is uh, in their circle politically, their political identity. Uh, And uh, you can't have survivor power and survivor wisdom unless you first acknowledge and confront the catastrophe And then in confronting the catastrophe, and yes, I invoke the idea of the protean self, um, but in confronting the capacity, I speak at the end of um, my book as imagining the real. Imagining the real, uh, it's a phrase by Martin Buber, uh, Mm -hmm. the uh, Israeli philosopher, uh, though nobody can quite seem to find exactly where he used it. But in any case, uh, it's his phrase. And what he meant by that is the difficulty of taking in actual events, really taking them in, allowing oneself to experience them uh, and take appropriate action. And it sounds natural to uh, imagine the real. The real occurs. We imagine it. We see it. But not so. Uh, when what we call reality, uh, and uh, can be so threatening that it becomes, or even in ordinary life, even 
the various vicissitudes and temptations and threats and struggles of family and work, uh, it can be difficult to take in what is actual or real. Uh, so that's much involved in the narrative of my book. Uh, and that's why I ended with the principle of imagining the real. And the protean self, uh, named after the Greek god Proteus, who was a notorious shapeshifter, uh, <laughs> simply says that because of our symbolizing capacities, we can um, change, the self can change, and it does, uh, and it can transform itself. It can have uh, various uh, uh, components that are surprising. Uh, and in this way, it can avoid dead ends. Mm. It doesn't mean that the protean self is a salvation. It just means that it is one way of experiencing life and acting that keeps issues open and can experience and promote change. Um, so in that way, the protean self becomes uh, a form that, again, must be collective, collective proteanism, as I call it, for society to confront uh, its, its threats. And what some some people call supernatural, uh, I would prefer to call the natural, uh, the natural um, extent of the self's behavior, mm. the natural unpredictability at times, the natural surprises that the self is capable of, uh, and the protean self is very much part of such a process. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's it's very, very instructive. Well, the book is called Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Um, you folks can find this uh, wherever they get uh, books. Uh, Robert, it was you know, an honor, a privilege to talk with you uh, for the past hour. You have such a, so much wisdom to share in your book and in, and in conversation. And um, I really, really am grateful for you coming on and, and sharing all of your insights. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very valuable. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Of course.